one of my earliest memories is jumping out of my bunk bed early in the morning and hopping in the car because my parents had gotten us tickets to Disneyland. Tickets to Disneyland. I remember the excitement of it. My brother Josh and my sister Rachel were there. My parents were there. We loaded up our Plymouth Voyager minivan and we drove from Sacramento to Los Angeles for Disneyland. It was wonderful. There's only one problem. You may know this if you've been there, but California is a really long state. And to get from Sacramento to Los Angeles, to get to Disneyland involved eight or more hours, especially with little kids, with all of us strapped into a small, confined space just to get to Disneyland. And inevitably, my parents sitting in the front seat trying as hard as they might to help us keep our focus, keep our excitement, keep our attention on our destination, on Disneyland... Inevitably, they would begin to hear things being chirped from the back seat. Things like, Mom, he stole my toy. Things like, Dad, he's poking me. Or my personal favorite, she's looking at me. We're throwing, we're kicking, biting, scratching, right? We're restrained, and yet we're flailing. And there's two observations that you could make right off the bat, right? Um, the first one being, if you're, if you're driving by, you're outside the car, and you're looking into the car, you're probably thinking, man, the inside of that car, the back seat of that car, is the last place I would want to be right now. That's the first thing. The second observation I can make is that, uh, <laughs> oh, my poor parents. The thought going through their heads was probably something like this. Why in the world can't our children, who we love, behave themselves and be nice to one another while we're on our way to Disneyland? And it's funny how we we lose sight of one another, right? Because all we can focus on in the back seat, us bickering children, is that we're right. I'm right. She's wrong. He's wrong, right? And we all think that that one another, like someone else started it, right? And my parents are in the front seat going, you keep arguing about who started it. We will pull this car over and we will finish it, right? You parents know what I'm talking about. Paul is making the case, and I think it's helpful to consider it this way. That the church is a little bit like the backseat of a car. We're a bunch of people crammed into a confined space, asked to do life together, and we're all headed somewhere spectacular. Brothers and sisters getting along. What does our behavior look like while we're on our way somewhere beautiful? Well, we continue our series in Romans at a place where Paul has just highlighted the reign of Christ. That was last week's sermon title, right? Christ's reign and our opinions, right? And Paul has reminded us, uh, in a sense, that when we get out of the car, when the car reaches the the destination, we're going to come face-to-face with Daddy, right? There will be judgment, 
Romans 14.10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And last week's message from Pastor John was about one who welcomes, one who, who rules, and one who judges. Right? And that ought to put us in a, a certain perspective as we journey together as the Church of Christ. We can so easily love our own opinions more than we love our brother, our sister. And in the church, uh, not just in Rome, but, but all over the church, there was uh, a sticking point. There were, there were those who chose things fairly uh, freely, and there were those who chose things fairly restrictively. And that sticking point involved consuming food that may have been used in idolatrous worship, right? And John reminded us last week, you know, these people, those who choose freely, those who choose restrictively, they're going to spend eternity together in paradise. And last week really was, you know, when, when this is all said and done, you realize you're going to look God in the face. You're going to look the Lord in the face. And, and this week... This uh, sermon this morning, the second half of Romans 14, sort of continuing the analogy, if I may, is about the work of Christ and how the work of Christ ought to impact your opinions and my opinions. And it sort of asks us to consider, do you realize how expensive tickets to Disneyland are? Do you realize how much love it took to get you in the backseat of this car? And uh, last week's text uh, primarily addressed the weaker brother. It talks to both weaker and stronger. This week's text, uh, conversely, is going to focus heavily on the stronger brother. But we all need to hear it this morning. Every one of us needs to hear this morning. So Paul frames his argument in Romans 14, verses 13 through 23, around two truths. The first truth is this, the command of God. The command of God, which is that we love one another more than we love our own opinions. God's command is that we love one another more than we love our own opinions. And the second truth is this, the work of Christ, which empowers us to love one another more than we love our opinions. The work of Christ, which empowers us to love one another more than we love our opinions. We'll spend much of our time this morning on that first truth, and we'll conclude with the second truth. Well, let's get started um, with the command of God. Love one another more than you love your own opinions. Uh, Paul says here in verse 13, look at it with me, please. Open up your Bibles. I hope you brought them. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. He begins with the word, therefore. And I always tell my students, when you see the word therefore in the text, you should ask the question, what is therefore, therefore? Because therefore is a linking word. It's meant to connect uh, what is coming to what has come before, right? And so again, he's anchoring our text today in the reality of the judgment of God. There is a judge. We will stand before the judgment seat of the Lord and we will give an account before our king for how we've treated one another. Therefore, let's not set ourselves up as judges one of another. 
And in fact, here in verse 13, he actually, Paul actually uses the word for judging twice. It shows up twice. You probably don't see it in the English text. One of them is translated as decide. But what he's saying is, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather you judge to do this. Don't judge one another. Judge this. Not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance, a scandal in the way of your brother. The word brother shows up 19 times in the book of Romans, and five of them are here in Romans 14. And Paul bookends his argument this way. He bookends his argument in Romans 14, 13 through 23, with this command. Love your brother and sister more than you love your own opinions. If you look at how he concludes at the end of this passage, you see at the end of verse 20, he says, it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats, or conversely, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble in verse 21. You see it there? And you see how the theme of judgment and condemnation resurfaces in verses 22 and 23? You see how Paul bookends his argument with this command. Decide Christians, this morning, that you're not going to pass judgment on one another. You have confidence in your Christian liberty? That's awesome. Use your freedom. Use your free choice to freely choose to love your neighbor. And what I love about Paul is he is is often willing to address objections that are made along the way as you hear him speak and you can you can see him anticipating the objection from the back seat which is but i'm right and they're wrong i'm right you see it there in verses 14 and 20 he acknowledges paul acknowledges that some some of you might indeed have a better grasp on the convictions that christ calls us to He says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but he doesn't end there. He says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Paul understands the objection that the stronger brother is making. And uh, to some degree, he agrees with him, right? Meat is meat. It's morally neutral in a vacuum, right? Paul is asking, however, he's asking the stronger brother to acknowledge the presence of and the conscience of someone who sees things differently, namely the weaker brother. And for the weaker brother, your consumption of meat used in idolatrous practices is not morally neutral. The stakes are much higher for him. Sure, you might be right, but you being right is not as important as loving your brother more than your own opinions in the eyes of God. And the reason for this, verse 15 is that your supposedly morally neutral act is actually grieving your brother. It's actually harming your brother. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Does that sound like moral neutrality? Just in case you missed the message, Paul cycles back to this twice at the end. In verses 20 and 21, he says, Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Do you see how Paul reframes our perspective? We are children in the back seat quibbling about what is clean and unclean when we ought to be asking, what is good? What is good? Um, I have extensive experience um, in just under four years of marriage 
I have extensive experience arguing with my wife, and I don't recommend it. One thing I've learned, if there's anything I've learned, um, is just because you think you're right doesn't mean you're in the right, right? The end of this passage is fascinating because it helps us put this in perspective, right? It says in verses 22 and 23, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And we have to ask, I think it's important to ask, is is this text calling for some sort of subjective morality? Is it all relative? Our culture today might look at this verse and say, see, it's all relative, right? I think what what this does tell us is that God does deal with us to some degree on an individual level. And you can say that what might be a commendable act for one person might very well be a despicable act for another. But does that mean it's all relative? I don't think so. And to make that case, I want to look at two passages that I think will help uh, illuminate this text for us this morning. Two passages about Christ interacting with people in his gospel ministry to see if we can find out what Paul is trying to say here. And the first one uh, is a story that many of you probably know well. The story of the widow's might in uh, Luke 21. The widow's offering. Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Objectively speaking, this woman gives very little. But she's actually giving so very much. And God's commands, brothers and sisters, are meant to hit us first on the level of our heart's And second, on the level of our behavior, as an outpouring of what's in our hearts. The command to the wealthy and the widow alike is to give generously. To make the Lord your treasure rather than making the treasure your Lord. And it is the widow with two small copper coins that shows us more than the wealthy people what obedience to that command looks like. Or to choose a second example, we could look at Mark chapter 7. And it's a fascinating scene where the Pharisees attack Jesus because his disciples aren't washing their hands, which was the ritually, uh, uh, culturally appropriate thing to do. It was an interpretation of the law that had been passed down by the elders, and it was widely practiced, but the disciples weren't doing it. So the scene unfolds like this. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, uh, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, 
It's given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. You see how the Pharisees get things twisted? In elevating their traditions, they're actually conveniently enriching themselves. Telling people, oh, just give it to God. Give it to the temple. And they're skimming off the top. And they're using giving to God as a justification for disobedience to one of God's most fundamental commandments, to honor your father and mother. The ethic, brothers and sisters, is not about the letter of the law, the following the traditions to the letter. It's about having a heart that is shaped by the law. That's leading to real righteousness. And on the flip side, it is a heart that rejects God's law and rejects God himself that leads to real sin. Jesus unpacks this in Mark chapter 7. He helps us see where real defilement comes from as the story goes on. He says, uh, he calls the people to him and says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. A little farther down, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And it's an interesting text. Do you see how this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees might have been part of the background at the, in the church at Rome? The first Christians were in the process of figuring this out. What did it mean when Jesus declared all foods clean? How, how is it that we're supposed to interpret and apply the Jewish kosher laws? Do they or do they not apply to the Christian life? And the disciples would have remembered this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. The earliest Christians determined that it was okay to eat quote-unquote common or unclean meat that wasn't kosher because Jesus reminds us what real sin is. Listen to me. Jesus is not redefining or relativizing sin. He's reminding us what it's always been. Sin is a matter of the heart. Sin flows out of your heart, brothers and sisters. And it's the sad irony of it all. In Romans 14, Paul's picturing a church where some believers have a strong conscience. They're able to choose very freely. And some believers who have a weak conscience, who choose very restrictively. And there's a real circumstance that might occur in the church where a strong-conscienced believer and a weak-conscienced believer are eating together, right? And the strong-conscienced believer begins to flaunt their newfound Christian liberty, perhaps even grounded in a text like Mark 7. They go full choo-choo barbecue and serve common meat that may very well have been slaughtered in a pagan place, in a pagan temple, as part of idolatrous worship. And for the strong-conscienced believer, this is a big nothing burger, Right? This is not a big deal. But what about the weak-conscienced believer? Is he or she going to feel pressured to participate 
in what they feel is wickedness and what they feel is immoral and defiling. Not because they've been convicted by the word of God and the words of Christ, but because of the peer pressure placed on them by the stronger conscience believer. And who put them in this situation in the first place? You, you strong conscienced believer, trying to force the issue. And in doing so, Romans 14 tells us, you've caused great destruction in the heart of your brother or sister. Do you see it there in verse 15? You are no longer walking in love. Remember, we learned two weeks ago in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law and it's the only thing you ought to owe one another. Paul says, if you grieve your brother, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's a profound statement. Don't destroy the one that Christ gave himself to bring to newness of life. And he echoes that statement in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It's possible, stronger brother, stronger sister this morning, that you have led your brother or sister astray with catastrophic results to their faith and to your Christian community. Paul says in verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Again, because sin is a matter of the heart. Sin flows out of the heart. And you've led your brother or sister to stumble into sin. So in this hypothetical situation with a stronger conscienced brother and a weaker conscienced brother, the stronger conscienced brother is actually in the wrong, even though he's right. And that's what Paul is trying to point out to us. He can sit there and say, well, Jesus declared all foods clean. It's just meat. But he's neglected the context. The point Jesus was making is that sin isn't about the externalities. It's about the heart. And the stronger brother is using the words of his Savior to produce nothing more than pride and foolishness out of his own heart. The result is going to be what we see in verse 16. What he regards as good is going to end up being spoken of as evil. Just because he wanted to make a point and force the issue. Paul says, don't let that happen. By elevating your liberty and your rights above your neighbor's conscience, you're exposing your liberty and rights to terrible critiques. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33, that second half of 1 Corinthians 10, provides something of a parallel text to this passage. And it actually gives us just such a picture. It points out a very similar hypothetical situation. Strong conscience believers, weak conscience believers coming and eating together. This was an issue in the early church. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, does the same thing he does here. He encourages the believer with the stronger conscience to lay down his rights, to lay down his rightness for the sake of the weaker brother. Paul repeats the Corinthian mantra, all things are lawful. They loved saying that. All things are lawful. But Paul continues, but guys, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And it's in the context of that passage that Paul utters those words that you and I have heard before and probably know so well. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the situation behind those words. Paul knew 
because God knew that the church was going to continue to have disagreements. We were going to continue to have disagreements over sometimes really big things, really important things worth dividing over. But also, sometimes, over really trivial, dumb things worth uniting together in spite of. And Paul's call to you and to me was that we learn to relate to one another with an ethic of neighbor love, even when we disagree. And that we ought to strive for the unity of the church and the glory of Christ's name because Christ is glorified and honored when you lay down your rights, when you love one another more than you love your own opinions. And the funny thing is that as we read and hear these things, brothers and sisters, our temptation will often be to try and use these texts as a shield to keep us protected from one another, right? To isolate us from one another or as a weapon, a club, to attack one another. But this section of Romans is not meant to vindicate any of us. This section of Romans is meant to convict all of us, brothers and sisters. Don't be like me when you listen to sermons, all right? And here's a, a fun tip for you when you hear sermons. If you catch yourself listening to a sermon, if you're hearing this this morning and you're thinking, oh, I really hope so-and-so is here listening to this. You're the one that needs to hear it. You need to hear it this morning. Don't fall into that trap like I so often do. Just to review this this passage, we see bookended at the beginning and at the end, lifts forth the command of God. Love one another more than you love your own opinions. And there's a challenge with this. We are Americans. And we are taught to take pride in our liberty. We are taught to flaunt our freedom to freely express ourselves. We live in a country and in a culture in which we emphasize my rights and my freedom. Rights and freedom, hear me, brothers, are good. These things are good. But the shape and the path of the Christian life is one of laying down your rights for the sake of your brother. And I know that. And I can say that confidently to you this morning because that's exactly what Christ did for you and for me. Now, I can't make any of us love one another any more than my parents could make us stop throwing things at each other in the back seat. But I can speak to you of Christ this morning. And that brings us to the heart of the passage, which is our second truth. The heart of this passage, at the very center of it all, pointing us to the work of Christ, which empowers and enables us to love one another more than our own opinions. If you look at the heart of this passage, verses 17 through, say, the first half of verse 20, do you see how Christ-centered it is? Paul grounds this command, this teaching, to love one another in the work of Christ and the kingdom he has accepted us into. He grounds it in Christ's love for us. Because this command is meant to anchor us in the things of God that really matter. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What does real righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit look like? Well, what were the kosher laws about in the first place? What were these things meant to do? The kosher laws, brothers and sisters, were about setting God's people apart. 
about setting God's people apart so that a longing world, a desperate world, would know that there is a people made distinct by their relationship with the one true God. They live differently. Brothers and sisters, that hasn't changed. The kosher laws have gone away, but what Jesus does in declaring all foods clean is he reminds us what his kingdom is really about, what it's always been about. Kosher laws were just a picture of what it means to be set apart in Christ's kingdom. And what are the attributes of those who are set apart in Christ's kingdom now? It's righteousness. Righteousness purchased for you by Christ and lived out in community. It's peace. Peace purchased for you by Christ and lived out in community. It's joy. Joy that was purchased for you by Christ and lived out in community. It is love for your brother and your sister. If sin is a matter of the heart, then these things are matters of the heart as well. And Christ says to all of us together in the back seat, The world will know that you follow me by, get this, how well you love one another. The world will know that you are a follower of Christ by how well you love one another. Do you see how we all need to hear this? You and me? We see in verse 18 that when you serve Christ with your mind, your heart, your behaviors marked by his kingdom, you're acceptable to God and you're approved by his people. Notice that it says nothing about being right in every argument. When these things are your focus, when you're willing to surrender your own rights, more often than not, you'll actually win your brother. In verse 19, he continues, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and building up. Let us pursue what makes for peace and building up in our corporate life together. We exist as a church not to maintain these four walls beautiful as they are. We exist as a church because Christ has loved you. Christ has loved you. He loves you this morning. And he wants to build you up, not you, the individual. You all, y'all. Christ wants to build you up together as his people, his body. And it is that work of Christ which empowers us to love one another more than we love our own opinions. Even when the back seat gets messy. Pursue that, Christians. You are his dwelling place, church. You are his beloved. You are his delight. Each one of you has the opportunity to read verse 15. Do not destroy the one for, for whom Christ died. And to remind yourself, he died for me. He died for me. Pastor John told us last week, in an environment in which the stronger despise the weaker and the weaker pass judgment on the strong, it is important to remember that the Lord has done neither of these things to you. Jesus doesn't scorn you. Jesus doesn't judge you. Jesus won't destroy you, even though destruction is exactly what your sins and my sins deserve. Why is that? It is, and will Get more of this next week in Romans 15. It is because Jesus Christ, he submitted to scorn. Because he was despised. Because he was judged. Because he was destroyed. For me, for you, for us. Christians, look at me. Look at me. Look to your left. Look to your right. 
Look at the back of the heads in front of you. You did not come here this morning to worship alone. And you do not leave here this morning alone. You belong one to another. And that's the work of Christ. That's the work of Christ building up his church. He purchased all who have put their hope in him, regardless of worth, regardless of merit. Over the course of an eight-hour car ride, brothers and sisters, there were lots of opportunities to turn around and lots of moments when my siblings and I probably deserved it. We're not going to Disneyland anymore. (laughs) But we got there. We got to that spectacular place together because of love and grace. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We are not headed to Disneyland, and that is wonderful news. We are headed to a place that is so much better. We are headed to a place where true righteousness, true peace, true joy will reign forever. The place we've always longed for. The hymn says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious will be the church at rest. And it's all possible because of the love purchased for us by Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, we need your word this morning. And it is hard. It is hard to love one another. It is especially hard to love one another more than we love our own opinions, God. But you empower us and enable us to do so. Not because we're good enough, but because of the work of Christ. Would you help us this morning to fix our eyes on the work of Christ, to be knit together in the back seat as brothers and sisters? Lord, would you fix our eyes on where we're going together? And remind us of the goodness and the greatness of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.